Hello, this is Aaron Wren, and welcome back to the podcast. Very pleased to be joined today by Rick Adamski, who is the president of Ash and Lime, which is an urban planning and design firm in Dallas. Rick, good to see you. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to talk to you. Yeah, Rick, uh, you and I, I believe, met when you were studying urban planning in Chicago. This was right as I was getting the uh, Urbanophile off the ground back in the Mm-hmm. Um, late 2000s there, and then we ran into each other in uh, Dallas a few years ago. And so uh, you're an old uh, old friend of uh, the Urbanophile, I would say. So uh, very happy to be able to talk with you on, on the podcast uh, for, for one of the uh, longtime people I've, uh, I've known. You are not from Dallas, and um, I'm kind of a little curious about how you got down there and, and what your impressions of it were. Because from the outside world, I think people generally have a low impression of urbanism in Dallas. You go there, it's, mm-hmm. high, it's highways everywhere, it's very suburban. The hotels or office buildings have these sort of neon lights outlining them and things like that. And it, it just sort of had a bad reputation. And in fact, I, I think this the guy, uh, Patrick Kennedy, maybe his name, uh, moved huh? there. Patrick Kennedy. Yeah, he, he chose to move there, he said, because it was the uh, like least pedestrian-friendly city on Earth or something like that, or the most car-dependent city <laughs> on Earth. There was some quip that he had about that. So I'm interested uh, in just getting your take as someone who's not a Dallas native and therefore not necessarily a homer on that. Mm-hmm. What is kind of the state of urbanism in Dallas? Well, on the one hand, it's true, especially coming from a place like Chicago or even living, you know, much of my life in a place like Cincinnati. <clears throat> this is a very suburban region. This is, a, for the most part, a very car-oriented region. Um, and in fact, if you look at the entirety of Dallas-Fort Worth, it is geographically the sixth largest region on planet Earth, wow. um, more than than many of the really great cities. So. There's lots of space here, and overall, the car is king. Um, And if you want to move here and have a a lifestyle where you never walk into uh, downtown Dallas or downtown Fort Worth or any of the other downtowns and walkable neighborhoods in our region, uh, that's that's a choice that you can make, and and you'd be fine. Uh, It's not somewhere that has a natural, really strong center of gravity. On the other hand, uh, there are increasing opportunities to live a more urban lifestyle here if that's what you want to do. It's becoming more and more of an option. Um, And we're starting to understand more and more of these policies. We, um, along with uh, this firm 3BL, um, we worked to bring in Chris Leinberger um, and Chris did a study of uh, the wake up walk up call of all of the walkable neighborhoods in DFW. Um, and there's quite a few that exist that are high quality. There's quite a few that are emerging and there's neighborhoods, which five years ago might've been a little bit dicier that, that would just stun people. Um, an example is, is the neighborhood deep Ellum that I've been going to ever since I moved to this region in, in 2011 um, and lived there for a couple of years. And it was less than a, you know, it, it's a great place in a lot of ways. It's very culturally interesting, less than a complete urban experience. Lots of vacancies, half the storefronts empty and so forth. And, and I'm telling you, Aaron, every time I go there, there's five new businesses that I haven't mm-hmm. seen. 
Um, I'm barely exaggerating. And, and the, the streets are, are packed with people um, at times when they would have been empty. Um, and we're seeing over and over again some of these, these very interesting things happen. Um, we also, you know, looking at this region broadly, you have, uh, you know, downtown Fort Worth, which has the Sundance Square area, which is one of the, the you know, highest quality downtowns of its size in the country and has one of the greatest public spaces. Um, and you have public spaces like Clyde Warren Park here in Dallas. Um, so there's, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of opportunities. Um, it is a culture shock compared to a place like Chicago. But um, I'm grateful to be here because I see what the opportunity is to really make a difference. Yeah, would you say um, that there's any kind of a, a, a Dallas way of urbanism or that there's something that's unique to these Texas cities and the way that they do urban things? One thing I noticed when I was there is it's just very, very, very hot in the summer. Right. So maybe maybe some treatments for, for that. How do they approach urbanism in contrast to, say, the, the older industrial cities of the north? You know, I, I don't know that they've made the type of adjustments overall that you might imagine um, with the heat. Um, I, I don't know if there's been the amount of thought. You know, there's there's places where you'll see that pavement is used in a smart way and so forth. But I don't know that, for example, they use shading the way that they probably should in an area like this. Like you should have a lot of points where where you can find somewhere to get protection from the sun. And you don't really have that. Um, I think that what is interesting about this area is that because, you know, a lot of the urbanism in, in Dallas was was essentially wiped out at one point to be retrofitted by the for the car. Um, there's been a lot of creative solutions for a long time to meet market demand. And some of them are, are really, you know, one of a kind and, and really innovative. Um, so, you know, for, for example, you have this in the suburbs, uh, you have this town Addison that, you know, at one point back in the eighties decided that since they didn't have a downtown, they would build one themselves. And you have Addison Circle, which is essentially a greenfield type of, of downtown place. And it actually feels really good. It, it does not feel um, artificial. Um, it feels much more organic than you might imagine. Hmm. Um, and it's it's somewhere where, you know, if, if I'm going up to that area and meeting someone, that's where I'm going to meet. Um, you have places like uh, South Lake Town Center, which is, um, just, uh, again, you know, essentially started out as, as what you might call, um, you know, a, a, a shopping center with a lot of the design features <coughs> of high quality urbanism, but it's evolved into something more complicated. Um, you have the uptown neighborhood, which is right adjacent to downtown. Um, and one of the things that has been observed is that in many cases, the, the actual, you know, a lot of the things that you would expect to happen downtown have in many cases happened in uptown. So some of it has happened in downtown, but you have really sky high office prices. You have really fantastic walkability. It's like its own center of gravity um, in its own right. And much of that was was essentially built from scratch and essentially under a development code that didn't know what to do with them. 
Um, so you can come up with example after example of, of a lot of, of creativity being used in Dallas. At the same time, there's, um, as these kind of bigger developers and bigger developments have had their own model, there's, uh, there's an incrementalism that has happened in Dallas. Um, that is one of the things that, that keeps me here. And a lot of people know my neighborhood, uh, the, the Bishop Arts District in Oak Cliff, you have near here where Better Block started. Um, you have, you know, a half a dozen consultants, myself included, who are saying, you know, essentially, don't, don't just try to do everything at once. Let's think more kind of what are the next steps that we can do with the resources you actually have. Um, you have developers that have done this. Um, my one person who's my, you know, mentor and, and been my business partner and, and so forth is Monty Anderson, um, who's co-founder of the Incremental Development Alliance and has done just really high quality work, you know, one building at a time that's that's had a lot of concern for the overall context. Sounds um, a little strong towns ish. Time, very, very strong towns ish. And, and in fact, Monty is is. Uh, has um, spoken at, at Strong Towns events and, and so forth. So his relationship with Chuck is very strong. Um, you have other people who have very close relationships with, with Chuck and with Strong Towns in this area. Um, you also have people like Scott Worman, um, Deep Elm 42, which is just, you know, the Deep Elm neighborhood, as I mentioned, just adjacent to downtown Dallas and has always been this funky countercultural neighborhood. And he bought up a bunch of the the commercial buildings that were were underserved, um, and everybody thought he was crazy. Um, and you know, you had half of these buildings were vacant. Everyone thought he was nuts. He fixed them up, and did this very patient approach and supported things like murals and public spaces, quasi public spaces. Long story short, it's it's almost like Deep Ellum is too popular now. I mean, it is you have three main streets there and the street that has traditionally been the least vibrant is more vibrant than the street that has traditionally been the most vibrant was um, four years ago. Wow. I think that was about uh, the last time I was there. So um, it would be interesting to see what what the transformation it looks like. That it had if it weren't for Scott and what he did. <laughs> well, um, I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the work that, that you've done there. Um, and, and one of the projects you worked on uh, goes right along with a great article that was uh, kind of a long-form article that was published in the American Conservative uh, called When a World's Fair Legacy Becomes a Texas-Sized Challenge. And it's about the, mm -hmm. um, it's about the uh, I don't know what you call it, the Texas Fairgrounds or Fair Park. Uh, fair, fair Park is, yeah. is what you call it. And some people um, – call it the state fair park or things like that because they only associate it with that three-week event yeah. but it's it's a, a more complicated space than that yeah well I, I, tell us a little bit about it i'd actually never heard of it and mm -hmm. um and, and so i guess it's the site of the state fair but also was the site of a world's fair called the texas centennial exposition back in 1936 which would a lot of it uh was encountered but just tell us a little bit about that and how it got to where it is today and, and what some of the challenges are there. So the, the fairgrounds have some really extraordinary assets. Um, it's, you know, the largest collection of 
um, you know, sort of art deco era exposition buildings in the world, if I'm correct. Um, they have the, uh, the cotton bowl, they have, um, some museums left. They used to have several more museums than they have now a beautiful lagoon and, you know, a lot of really cool things. Um, it also has a lot of parking lots that are empty almost every day of the year, including some, some spaces that are generally empty, even when the state fair of Texas is in town. Um, and you know, it's surrounded by a lot of disinvestment on three sides, essentially. And it contributes to that disinvestment um, because you have these neighborhoods where there are high poverty rates and where a lot of people have left over the last several decades. And what surrounds these neighborhoods is either parking or various barriers, um, all sorts of things that are that are essentially walls that keep the neighborhood from connecting to this asset. Um, Wasn't so, it a uh, – it's in South Dallas, right? Was that predominantly correct. black area, and so some of that walling off may have been intentional? It, it is, and in fact, some of the walling off certainly was. Um, we did – one of the things that we did um, while we were working on this project was did a, um, did a display on the past, present, and future of Fair Park. We actually were, they, they have a huge Earth Day event, largest Earth Day event in the world, is in Fair Park every year. Um, and we ended up taking eight booths and having 30 volunteers or so and, and um, doing a big display in, in the middle of, of this building in Fair Park. Um, we talked about the past, present, and future of Fair Park. And one of the things that we emphasized was uh, a report from 1966. Um, that, uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to say I'm probably saying this in a nicer way than the report said it, but basically what it said is people go to the state fair. They see a lot of black people who are living in slums, um, who are right next to it. And the solution, um, is to remove the problem from public view. Uh, I think that might've been the exact words. So we talked to people about if we were to tear down all of this housing, put up a fence, you know, have a well-lit parking lot, would this address your concerns? And the answer was yes. Um, so you have, uh, you know, essentially deliberately uh, tearing down part of the neighborhood at that point, not with the intent of, of fixing the problems, but the, with the intent of keeping them from public view. Um, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that, are subtle design features um, that would probably make people who do not live in the neighborhood feel unwelcome. Um, and a lot of it you would not notice consciously if you weren't a trained urbanist. But the messages that are sent are, whether they're delivered or not, are very clear that, that this is kind of a different turf than the neighborhood that surrounds it. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, there's a more, on one of the four sides, um, there's, you have a commercial district, the Expo Park neighborhood, which is right next to the Esplanade, which is this, which are these wonderful buildings. Um, and while some design features could be improved, um, that, that could better connect the two, you know, they're pretty darn connected so that, you know, if you are in that area and you go to a, a play or have a drink or, or go to a magic show, go to an art gallery, whatever you want to do there. Um, you know, you can walk afterwards to the Esplanade and it's going to be a pleasant experience.
what's in the park right now? Well, first of all, there's a lot of parking. Um, there's about 9,000 parking spaces. So that takes up a whole bunch of that 277 acres. Um, you have uh, some uh, some of the expo buildings that were, you know, several of the expo buildings from the state fair um, that uh, have that are very large, so they can be used for various purposes. Um, you have the the Cotton Bowl, although the the actual Cotton Bowl event it no longer has there. You you have a, um, a, a Texas Oklahoma game that's played there, and then a lot of minor events. Um, you have some agricultural uses that are that are only active at certain times. Um, you have a, a, a children's aquarium. Um, you have a, a sort of a nature center type of thing, um, and a couple of other cultural uses. You, there's a um, a theater that does Broadway style performances and attracts a lot of people, but they they drive in their car and then they leave, um, and. Um, then you have a really beautiful lagoon that's there um, that, that could be an asset that's better used around the year. So it's, it's a wide variety of uses. And, you know, and it's not as if there aren't a lot of events there um, outside of, of the, the state fair. Um, it's more an issue that there's not a lot. It, it, it's, there's not a lot of parts of it that are are really available, that are really um, pleasant for daily use, that people would really use on a daily basis. Um, so it doesn't really function as a park in any meaningful sense for the most part. Yeah. One of the things I read in this article is that a lot of main, a lot of Dallas's highest-end cultural institutions, like the Art Museum and the Symphony and the Opera used to be there, but they were all relocated downtown. And that essentially helped undercut undercut the the viability of that so so what did you all do there in terms of, of thinking about space so we did a few things um one of the things that is is very interesting is that we were we were brought on so we were we were working for this not-for-profit group uh called the foundation for community empowerment um that has been working in the neighborhood for a long long time and um, we went we went on several projects related to this. Um, one of the things that we did is we were asked to uh, look at the footprint of the State Fair of Texas and ask ourselves, would there be a way that could be win-win where the State Fair could be on a smaller footprint? It was a very fascinating exercise because we had to... Um, we, we, we had to go through and we had to explore what the best practices were for what you might call immersive environments. Um, and when we looked at the state fair from that perspective, uh, we saw that there was a lot of it that really fell short from a user experience perspective. For example, it's, it's a place where if you look at the best practices from, say, Disney, um, we weren't trying to make this into Disney, but Disney turns out to be the, the people who do immersive experiences the best. You don't have a lot of dead ends. You have a very, very compact footprint. You don't necessarily walk past the back of the house activities quite a bit. Um, every space that you have is either active, you're either doing something fun or it's passive. You're out of the action and you're relaxing. There's not a lot that's in the middle. 
And when we looked at the state fair from that perspective, we found it was it was easy to kind of get disoriented. You had a lot of dead ends. You had a lot of times where you could be walking around a circle and there were a lot of areas that weren't very satisfying, either as active uses or as passive uses. Once we looked at it from that perspective, we were able to show how you could do the state fair on a smaller footprint and have an experience that would have been better for everybody. Um, and that would have made the state fair more money. Um, but also, the by having a smaller footprint, you would have the community being able to use the space in a more meaningful way for more of the year. Because essentially, the agreement that, that the, the, the state fair had limited what could happen for one week, one month before the three weeks during, and then two week, two months after the state fair. So it really limited the possibilities for a lot of the year. And we think that we were able to show that you could do a design that would not do that. So that's one of the things that we did. Yeah. We yeah. also, at the time, there was momentum uh, to basically hand over the the control of the fair to kind of an, an old guard person um, without having a, a public process or, or, you know, an RFP or anything like that. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it was someone who had, you know, had a lot of dedication over a long time to the city. Everybody liked him. Um, but most of us didn't think that it was appropriate to to kind of hand over control of such an important public asset without having an RFP process. Um, so one of the things that we did is we led um, we led some public engagement, um, including the thing that I mentioned that was a three day event with the with Earth Day, where we gathered almost a thousand people's input about what the future of Fair Park should be. Uh, we used a bunch of different techniques, you know, to make sure that everything from walking tours that went into the surrounding neighborhoods to um, asking people to write and draw their ideas, things that engage children, things that engage teenagers, really getting everybody's opinion on what the park should be and what should be in the park. Um, and then after we did that, um, we, um, we did an analysis of all of the of the public hearings that there were, which there were, gosh, you know, a dozen events during that period and people who were very passionate, compiled them into a report and kind of summarized what people wanted to see. And it was different. It was very similar to what we thought and was different than I think a lot of the direction that that people wanted to, that the city maybe wanted to go, that the establishment maybe wanted to go. Um, so we're we're proud of that, and it's something where we, um, you know, it did end up being a bid process, and and we're proud of having taken a big role in in building public support. Um, you know, one of the things that we really focus on, if you talk about stakeholder engagement, I think we're very confused as a society sometimes on what the words stakeholder and engagement both mean, and it's really about very deeply connecting with people in many different ways, wherever they are, uh, who are who, who invest their time, energy, money, and passion into a place and who care about a place. Yeah, I, I would ju I just, just reading this article was super fascinating, and it, it, it sounds like you would just do a ton of, 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 of uh, conversation. We could probably talk for an hour just about the, the World's Fair, because I, I think it's such a, an, an interesting, such an interesting place, uh, but I want to get to at least one other one of your projects uh, in the time that we that we have here, and and the thing that really 
really made a uh, impression on me was this Grow to Soto um, mm-hmm. one that you, one that you did, where it was a creative reuse of a uh, a strip mall. I think basically, can, can you talk about that a bit? Sure. So we were working with with Monty Anderson, who, as I said, many of your listeners might know, he was the the developer for this project. Um, this is uh, what, in, what everyone refers to as the old Ace Hardware. So he had a, a strip mall. Um, they had a, an empty store that was an Ace Hardware store. Um, and he basically was, um, you know, was going to uh, to buy it and put in whatever he could and flip the property. Um, and he talked to the the mayor of DeSoto, who knew the the innovation and the quality of his work. And the mayor said, "Can we can we talk? Can we figure out something to do?" Because he would have had probably, um, you know, he had a dollar store that was talking to him that, that wanted to use the space. And she said, "Monty, can we do something more creative?" Monty said, "Yes, we can if we can kind of get the the resources together." And he proposed something that was essentially a multi-vendor market um, where uh, in a business incubator, I guess, is, is a better word, where you could have under this one roof of the Ace Hardware where people could have curated businesses, whether it was micro restaurants, retail, offices, um, you know, you have a workout facility, you have a, a lash school, like you have all sorts of these uses that go under this one roof. And that they're they're curated, and we helped work with that with um, them to uh, to come up with a, a design for the outside space. Um, we helped to design essentially a gathering area outside that allowed food trucks and trailers to come in, and would allow people to to sit and enjoy themselves in the, in the place that in a city that didn't have a lot of those types of spaces necessarily. Um, we did a zoning code that was really interesting. Um, I don't know of anything that innovative that, that has had to have been done in a suburban strip mall context um, because we wanted to do things like uh, allow the incremental development of buildings on this lot essentially. And we had residential um, uses and we had public space uses and market uses that we wanted to really curate um, we helped to run a pitch day um, and to guided a pitch day where people could come in with their ideas and we could help to curate them and get the right people in who are doing some really exciting things. Um, this is a community that does not have a traditional downtown. Um, they have something kind of in the ballpark um, around their city hall, but they wanted to have places that were just really cool where people could hang out that could showcase how special this community is. And I'm just very proud of what's been done there. Um, there, uh, we recently won a uh, regional award, um, called the, the Clyde award, uh, for development excellence. And, uh, that, um, that was about a week and a half ago, maybe. Um, and well, we've been profiled in a lot of places for this. Thank you. Thank you. You know, and, and Monty, uh, Monty Anderson, um, you know, he's the the developer on this and he, um, you know, as I said, co-founded the Incremental Development Alliance. So he's teaching people all over the country how to do this stuff. And um, I've had the privilege of working with him in a lot of different things. And it's, it's just helped me because not only do I know the planning end, but it's helped me to learn the development end as well. 
um, so that we, we not only, you know, might say, hey, let's come up with these cool ideas and pretty pictures, but let's figure out what can actually be built on the ground. Yeah, well, but there are so many of these um, older suburban retail centers mm-hmm. that are in need of creative redevelopment that, uh, you know, finding templates to be able to do that, uh, I think, is, is, is really important. They've, all, they've often been a challenge in, in a lot of places. They really have. And one of the um, one of the things is that a lot of the discussion about suburban retrofits has really focused primarily on um, places where the market is really strong. Um, so you'll see a lot of designs and discussion and, and things happening where the market is so strong, where it's in the top one percent or two percent. And, you know, you can find a developer to come in there and say, sure, I'll pour $40 million into this old, you know, uh, shopping center because I know that I can get I can get good you know, results for you um, and that I can make the, the numbers work. Um, we have a lot of places that we have to think about in this country. Most of the places that we have to think about are not in that one percent or two percent. Um, and we have a lot of, of strip malls that are maybe they're they're failing, but maybe they're just not really reaching their potential. Maybe they have tenants, you know, because this this DeSoto marketplace, the Grow DeSoto place had tenants before and there wouldn't have been a lot of vacancies, but they're not special places. So can we take these strip malls? This is a place that's, you know, just on a, a high, uh, high volume thoroughfare, essentially. Um, in a very suburban context, can we take this and make this into a special place? Um, and I talked to a lot of people at the time who were saying, who were, you know, basically like, well, if it's not just in the right intersection or just in the right city, there's nothing really you can do about it. Sorry. Um, I don't accept that. You know, we're, we're, we did, um, in our doing an event series in uh, in the, you know, her Texas and it's, you know, a community that, that doesn't have a downtown, but, you know, we were brought in in this in this uh, strip mall context, and there's a lot of really special places in and near there. Um, we had this place where we where we did this project. Um, you have the largest community theater in the state of Texas, and they do extraordinary work. That's that's right in the strip mall. You have all of these um, a dance school that's there that just absolutely blew me away. Um, you have this great diversity of cultures. Nearby, and you have all these restaurants and stores that reflect the diversity of cultures. Um, you know, just in this strip mall alone, you have two African stores and and various um, ethnic restaurants in and nearby there. So it's there's a lot there that's really cool, and um, there's a lot nearby that's really cool, and we've given up on places like this and decided that they were you know, that they're not necessarily worthy of our interest as urbanists. And I don't buy that. So the, the event series that we're doing is a first step towards creating a permanent public space um, or semi-public space in this strip mall. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's the Bel Air event series in Hearst and we did our second one. So we're, uh, we'll have our, our third one coming up, we might be doing something with Shakespeare in the Park with the with the Artisan Theater over there. So we'll see what happens. Well, Rick, thank you very much. Uh, your firm is Ash and Lime, right? And how can people find you online? 
Well, you can just go to ashlime.com, um, and that's lime like the fruit. Uh, those are the ingredients of Roman concrete. So we, those are very simple ingredients that have proven to stand the test of time in creating extraordinary places. And when we look at how to create great places, it's sometimes we, um, we can have plans that forget the very basics and make things more complicated than they need to be. So, you know, when we, we look at simplicity, so we'll look a lot at not just what are the two or three things that will make the huge impact, but what are the 20 to 30 things that might make a 1% difference each and how do you implement them, you know, as quickly as possible with the resources you have so that you can get real results on the ground at moderate risk to yourself. All right. Well, thank you very much, Rick. I, I appreciate getting to connect with you again uh, after after uh, the running into each other in multiple cities, and hopefully we'll uh, see each other uh, in person again. Thanks, Aaron. I'm sure we'll right. cross paths again as well. All right. Thank you very much. Take care.